And I'm E. And welcome to Blood and Turf, a podcast about transphobic ideologies, such as trans-exclusionary radical feminism, and its intersections with fascism, cults, pseudoscience, and other reactionary political phenomena. On Thursday, 21st of October, the political organization called the LGB Alliance held a conference of 400 plus people from across the transphobic political movement. Much of the reporting and public commentary on the conference has focused on a few shocking or comic high points. The terrible disco, the dire reputations of certain attendees, such as Andy Nyo, clips of transphobe behaving weirdly, and the generally odd vibe. However, the actual contents of the conference and its nature as a political event have not been delved into in detail by most commentators. Most people think the event was a bit of a joke. We think this is a mistake. Thanks to a friend of the show who attended and recorded the event, we've obtained a recording of the entire thing, and the contents of the recording point in some very concerning directions. The next few episodes of ours will be covering this conference. Those who follow our Twitter will know how many hours of material and pages of notes uh, Emma's laboured on. We're not going to inflict seven hours of our nonsense on anyone in one block. Uh, instead, this, this episode will be focusing on some specific areas. Uh, much of the conversation at the conference touched on various tropes similar to those found in fascism, including bodily essentialism and conspiratorial rambles about invading, encroaching and plotting forces. We've covered the theory around these in previous episodes. This is not going to be a sports commentary of the same stuff. In between regular deployments of wildly bigoted tropes, slanders and slurs, a theme was clearly hammered home to attendees. The LGB Alliance has a clear strategy of destroying its opponents, Stonewall, and we know other other targets were discussed, as we'll hear shortly, and engaging in a multi-front campaign across all the major institutions of civil society to roll back the trans rights movement, as well as modern intersectional politics in general. The LGB Alliance seeks to be a sort of anti-Stonewall vanguard, working within the higher institutions of British civil society, campaigning to totally change NHS, BBC and wider government policy with relation to gender and LGBT issues in a deeply reactionary direction. This has thus far been what most people familiar with the trans rights movement would have assumed about the organisation, but the depth of the reality needs to be seen and directly analysed. We will be using audio clips from the conference where possible and reading out transcripts where the audio quality does not allow for a good listener experience. If we do use audio, however, we will warn you before we do so, um, because it's some really awful stuff. Uh, and if you don't feel that you can listen to it, you can always skip past. We'll warn every time. Content warnings for this episode include, uh, you know, clips of highly transphobic political speech, uh, including discussions of myths regarding surgery and various other common tropes that are awful. As ever, our music is by Molly Noise. Uh, this first episode is going to focus on the plans, the policies and the messaging in the conference and also what the conference meant in terms of like the, the intentional political behaviour of the LGB Alliance going forward. Essentially, it's about like what they intended to get out of it, what they were consciously thinking about. Um, and particularly that relates to things like government policy and like the planned behaviour of the LGBA as a, as a coherent organisation. Um, previously, the general perception of the LGB Alliance has been that it's been a bit of an astroturf group, um, pun intentional or unintentional, take your pick. Uh, and therefore, people kind of didn't take it seriously. They, you know, they, everyone thought they were bastards, but they didn't see them as being hugely dangerous. Having gone over the material and looked at the stuff they were saying, the way in which they were saying it, the way they were talking about organising, I think it is actually a lot wiser to view the LGBA as essentially like UKIP for gender. 
uh, and we'll we'll get into this later on. But there's there's a number of similarities in how those two organisations operate, but also some really key differences. Um, for example, the LGBA is simply not going to be a political party. That's not how they see themselves. It doesn't need to be. Instead, they have this uh, institutional strategy. We've talked about institutional strategies before on the show. Um, this, in the in the conference, however, they've kind of laid it out in a very, very clear way. Um, although they didn't say, oh, we're going to attack this, that, and the other for every single thing that they intend to go after. It was very clear they have some specific targets. Um, number one target is Stonewall, which they have a, like a... a a deeply driven ideological hatred of and wish to essentially completely destroy. Uh, this is not news. This is, you know, been established. And if you follow people on Twitter who do lots of commentary about tariff politics and, and, and the gender critical movement, then you would know about this being a generalized thing that they hate Stonewall. Um, however, the, the content in the conference that is worth noting on this on this subject is that they really, really want to have a proper pitched battle with Stonewall throughout civil society. Uh, other, other targets are things like diversity and inclusivity programs in the higher education sector, um, anything to do with like pro-LGBT policy in the NHS that doesn't conform to their view of what uh, you know a pro-LGB policy should be. And there's various other things. They wish to lobby MPs. They want to do like grassroots campaigning on like school boards. They want people to essentially red pill their friends and family. Um, and they're going after various levels of electoral politics, including police and crime commissioners, one of whom was present, obviously, and MPs and, and the various political parties at the higher up levels. So essentially, uh, the, there's a, there is a series of offensive targets that the LGB Alliance laid out to its members and viewed together it forms a, a moderately coherent policy platform for how they all how they all behave um as i was saying to m earlier it really does seem like uh lgba want to be stonewall at its peak you know when it was the lgbt charity and the word to every business other charity levels of government and of course they don't have the ability to actually do that what they want is the trappings that come along with it so the ability to dictate um lgb everything lgbt uh thanks to the government uh which obviously in their case includes you know exterminating trans people um to be clear this is what this conference was about and you know of course i'm sure some of them want some plump jobs at the level of government to see that out but it's really worth thinking about it through that lens in terms of the, the sheer amount and level of institutional capture that they desire and uh where they're going with it so yeah um as, as he said the general plan of the lgb alliance is to sort of supplant stonewall as this as this kind of like pretender to the to the throne so to speak um but War it, of the it, rainbows. Oh, good lord! <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 more complicated than that. Like it's not it's not simply just that you know Stonewall and LGB Alliance are going to go into the ring with their boxing gloves. Rather, the LGB Alliance intends to like roll back or alter a whole series of areas of of, of policies. To pick out to pick out some example policies, uh, they want to bully uh, like Lord Lord Herbert, the UK Special Envoy on LGBT Rights and the chair of the of the College of Policing, into giving them access to the 2022 LGBTQ Summit, which is being held in the UK as an official like organisation with the sanction of the UK government. 
that's so that's an example of them kind of like getting their foot in the door of being like a government mandated organization along with their long protracted rainbow war with Stonewall, they've marked out a couple of other organizations which they see as a barrier to their primacy as the only or last word on LGBT policy, including uh, Athena, which is uh, a uh, approving body uh, that requires people to get Athena Swan Charter approval um, in universities. Yeah, so this was mentioned in one of the presentations by a professor, Alice Sullivan. Um, Now, her presentation was essentially about data collection and the the whole, like, uh, popular gender critical slash turf myth of the the notional fact that um, data collection bodies are no longer collecting information on biological sex and that this is destroying government policy in various different ways. And it's it's, it's erasing lesbians and, and, and girls and all this stuff. The following is a clip of Professor Alice Sullivan um, going on to explain, having just explained the, the, the gender critical slash transphobe equivalent of grace replacement theory, um, that she thinks that essentially universities and higher education bodies are um, engaging in the erasure of women and lesbians. It's a bog standard transphobic trope. Uh, the clip begins now. It affects universities as well. This is something I'm particularly worried about at the moment. So the Athena Swan Charter was set up in order to monitor women's careers going to STEM subjects about science, technology, engineering and maths. But they have now mandated that universities should collect data according to gender identity, not sex. And it's really insidious because similar to Stonewall, Athena Swan give out gold stars to universities. And if you don't have a bronze Athena Swan award, you can't get research council funding. Now, it's sometimes argued, um, well, you know, who cares about this? It's not such a big deal because it's just a handful of people. There's just a few of them, and why can't we just be kind, essentially? Um, in fact, it's a bogus argument for more than one reason. So one reason is that actually we don't have good, accurate data on the number of trans, non-binary, etc., people in the general population. What's interesting about this, as listeners will probably remember, is that the, um, if I remember correctly, the LGB Alliance directly, although if not them, a group very friendly to them, did interfere in the last UK census, specifically about guidance for trans respondents. So this is a very specific line they're using, which is A, obviously untrue and a confusion they've created themselves, but really shows, I guess, their interest in pursuing um, this sort of data-heavy uh, activism or, or just general administrative um, infrastructure. It also fits in with their generally kind of like with the generally kind of technocratic bent of the audience. Of exactly. The exactly. But, Which is really important to emphasize, I think. Anyway, as I've said, mentioning mentioning technocrats, Professor Alice Sullivan um, essentially delivered this this presentation about data collection, and she was particularly concerned about NHS policies and also about higher education policies. Uh, alongside the other normal things like crime statistics and, and rolling out various different tropes like the, the the insidious male perpetrator stuff, all of that kind of thing. All of um, the stuff that's currently, you know, uh, part of Tory housekeeping as well, incidentally, you know, higher education, uh, the NHS and policing. Yeah, three, three really big hot button issues for the Tory government, given the current political situation in the UK. 
Uh, anyway, to, to explain what this Athena Swan Charter is, just as an example of how the LGB Alliance is, is attacking various different institutions across civil society, is that Sullivan is complaining that um, STEM equalities drives uh, are being screwed up by the shift from recording gender identity as opposed to sex. Um, and she mentioned by name this thing called the Athena Swan Charter. I had never heard of this before and I looked it up. Uh, and essentially it's 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 run by an NGO, which is you know connected to the general academia world. Um, and it 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 focuses on diversity in like this intellect in like this inter intersectional framework and it helps universities and, and other bodies improve their internal gender equality policy implementation. It's, uh, that, and that's kind of just a, like a lift from their from their website when they explain what they are. Um, the implication here essentially is that Sullivan wants the LGB alliance to take it and similar bodies on and either force them to capitulate in terms of what the LGB alliance sees as the the correct manner like manner of of of, of like being the arbiter of, of reality, or it wants them completely removed from policy decisions. Um, now. <laughs> Things like the Athena program are like boring and NGO-ish, but they're, they're structurally really quite important to higher education. And the fact that the LGB Alliance wants to like essentially go into combat with them under the context of cooperating with the conservative government really kind of points out the kind of policy animal that, L that the LGB Alliance is. It's essentially a collaborative one. Like that, that they are that you know many of the people at this conference will notionally have had the histories in in the left wing movement back in the nineteen eighties, um, but now they are essentially collaborators in a fully a fully willing and eager manner. Um, in case it's unclear to you, if if the Tory government were to have some kind of like smokescreen excuse to start attacking diverse diversity programs within the higher education establishment as part of its much vaunted war on wokeness then like the consequences for British civil society would be deeply bad and it would put us in a very, very reactionary position. Um, it, it's a bit up in the air as to whether or not LGB Alliance will ever prioritise this particular section, but it is an interesting example of their presumable intentions, given the fact that they gave, you know, panel time to this person. And considering the, um, as you said, the, the collaboration of the Tories, the government, the British ruling government, and the trans, like, gender fash, it's also, I think, worth noting that although they might not go after them themselves, there is every chance that they might be nudged towards going to certain targets. Um, it really seems like uh, this uh, conference also marked, you know, as much as they spoke about institutional capture themselves, like institutional capture of this group by the Tories. I think it's also worth pointing out in the US at the moment, it's been made very clear that the cultural kind of debacle around Dave Chappelle's hack shit comedy is actually uh, about uh, la labor disputes in, in Netflix. And, and I think thinking about it in that context really helps when looking or, you know, trying to read the tea leaves when it comes to like uh, Tory kind of turf collusion. Right, because in the Chappelle case, as I think I pointed out on the on the on the the pod the pod Twitter account, essentially like Dave Chappelle is, is is unimportant to the whole debate in Netflix. Like he's famous, but structurally speaking, he's unimportant. What is structurally important in terms of you know the class struggle is the fact that you know the trans employees at Netflix were essentially pushing forward a workplace demand, and then like ostensibly left wing members of the Twitter commentariat said that they were being corporatist, um, like 
pricks because they were opposing uh, brave free speech hero Dave Chappelle. So like this random comedian was essentially being used to demobilize the the public relations side of a workplace of like a pro worker workplace struggle. Uh, specifically with uh, an issue which at the moment in America is suddenly having this huge deluge of consent manufacturing regarding the polarizing of like trans people. Um, it definitely feels like this was a cheap grab to almost gender reactionify the general public as a kind of strike breaking mechanism or kind of any solidarity mechanism. Yeah, a wonderful example of, of, of this kind of general um, general psychology that, that occurred in, in the audience actually happened towards towards the end because a lot of this a lot of this boils down to a lot of the a lot of like the, the turfs and the, and the gender crits being just babies and and kind of wanting to get their own back at the world not being the way they 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 remember it in the glory days like all fascists <laughs> yeah and we will go into this a bit more in the second episode on this mini series because the second episode is about psychology but there was this there was this particular moment where the editor of boys magazine a, a long-running gay magazine run that was edited edited by a man called bridal um was was on his panel bit and complained about the fact that the Terence Higgins Trust, which is a, a you know a fairly important charity in the UK um, or NGO really, the Terence Higgins Trust is, is basically this like charity in Britain which does campaigning around like uh, essentially like awareness raising and, and service provision regarding HIV and sexual health. This guy Bridal um, essentially tweeted out links to LGB Alliance stuff on the on the boys magazine twitter account and you know got cancelled horribly in the culture wars for it and various different components of of the, of the lgbt community cut ties with this long-running magazine including did they yes they well according to him they did um, including the terence higgins trust which stopped advertising with him um and he was sufficiently uh, hurt by this that he insinuated when he was on one panel alongside Joanna Cherry, Rosie Duffield, and um, Jackie Doyle Price, that he he wanted the MPs present to look into the funding that the government was giving the, the Terence Higgins Trust very, very closely, um, describing it as an HIV quango, that's quasi-autonomous non-governmental organization. Um, so there's there's this like bizarre blend of wanting to like go to battle with every other component of the LGBT community getting the government to do their work for them and also just being like just massive children about every conceivable slight. The clip of Bridal talking about the relationship between Boys Magazine and TH and, and the Terence Higgins Trust begins now. There's no major content warnings for it, but I should say that the audio is a little bit patchy. I've done my best to clear it up though. Clip begins. My business was being destroyed in front of my eyes. And the reason for that is because Boys is a free magazine. We are totally dependent upon advertising. On the second day of this Twitter onslaught, the chief executive of the Terence Higgins Trust, the long-standing HIV and AIDS charity, asked us to apologize. Ian Green. He wrote, please, Boys magazine, reconsider your promotion of an organization that is opposed to trans equality. He tweeted it along with a picture, trans rights are human rights, of course. Within an hour of that tweet, I had apologised. I was trying to save my business, and if the CEO of the leading HIV charity, and incidentally a major advertiser with boys, spending up to £20,000 a year, 
and we're a small business, that's a lot of money, was asking me to apologise, and I would. And of course, as we all know, it was a big mistake. <laughs> a big mistake that I think Mayor Fosbeta would absolutely, uh, quite rightly, later warn everyone, really, because it is never enough. Yeah. And let me tell you how it was never enough. Um, this was all happening last November, and then in January of this year, uh, a new Terence Higgins Trust campaign for National HIV Prevention Week was booked into boys. had been booked for months. Uh, we started talking to them about editorial pages. We used, we've done this campaign with them for 10 years. Uh, a front cover, a photo shoot. But then a few days later, we got an email from our THT contact. We won't be running HIV Testing Week advertising in boys and the issues we discussed. However, we will be in touch in April about running a piece about our new trans sexual health resources. With apologies for the confusion, I have been misadvised. What was the point of the boys' apology if the very organisation who had called for it wouldn't accept it and would no longer advertise with us? Abdicating its duty to provide HIV prevention information to gay men. What about the gay men in this room who support the LGB Alliance, who mainly read boys? Do they not deserve HIV prevention messages from the THT? THT receives £6 million from the public purse, a combination of local and national government. It is effectively an HIV crime bureau, funded by the taxpayer through Public Health England. And now with the Charity Commission demanding charity leaders stop imposing their own ideas on the organisations, maybe this is one of the questions for the MPs on the panel today. One final note from the editing booth before I cut back to the main audio. Um, Pink News uh, today, and I'm editing this on, on the, the Thursday the 28th, um, released an article titled HIV Activists Slam Tory Government's Continued Silence. Um, basically, Sunak's budget, which was released today, um, did not have any particular earmarked things for the Terence Higgins Trust or the National AIDS Trust. Um, and there, this has relay, has raised alarm bells. In, in this context, we can't say that, you know, Bridal asked Jackie Doyle Price to get Sunak to cut stuff from the budget. That's obviously ludicrous. However, in the general context, it indicates the kind of ideological position. Obviously, in the clip, he doesn't explicitly say, oh, yeah, go, go and attack the Terence Higgins Trust. But I think the, the sense of victimisation and um, Bridal's outright statement that he believes that the Terence Higgins Trust had a, had an explicit duty to advertise with him personally indicates this generalised sense of resentment and then like calling on a bunch of MPs sitting next to him to look closely at their, to look at their funding is just very indicative in general. It really does seem like the the Tories are, are using these people as as you know scabs basically for the LGBT community because this is exactly what the Tories want out of every kind of thing um they've been a, they've been very anti-ngo and charity since you know for over a decade at this point and you would have think they would have had their fill but apparently not i think it's also important that we've now 
barely gone through any quotes and we've already given you multiple examples of conference attendees kind of directly addressing the government or making jokes as if they have the ear of the government some of that will obviously be baby arrogance but it's 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 worth bearing in mind i think i think we should get into one of the most important things that that came up at this conference um which was again about something i had never heard of before um, and i'm unsure of the pronunciation of this but i believe it is pronounced Yogyakarta principles um these are a series of civil society legal principles and guidelines regarding like essentially like minority inclusion and civil rights uh, anyone would like to send us a free copy of uh, transgender law so we can be better at this stuff please do <laughs> oh dear that might imply to the listeners that we would get around to reading it <laughs> oh i've been waiting to read it for months oh okay fair enough <laughs> <laughs> i'm not reading it <laughs> no that's fine that's fine that's fine i have too much stuff to read True. anyway so basically um one of the speakers was a man called robert wintermute who is uh, notionally an international expert on uh, human rights and civil rights and he was he, he for a long time was a great proponent of these things called the Jakarta principles and he was brought on in i think the second panel session to talk about them and his speech essentially laid out for the attendees of the lgb alliance conference a strategic basis for wiping out the recognition of transgender people in any kind of legal context. Wintermute was essentially chiefly concerned with principle three and principle 31 of the Yogyakarta principles. Um, principle three essentially states that uh, each person's self-defined sexual orientation and gender identity is integral to their personality and is one of the most basic aspects of self-determination, dignity and freedom. No one should be forced to undergo medical procedures, including sex reassignment surgery, sterilization, or, hormo or hormonal therapy as a requirement for legal recognition of their gender identity. Um, it's a lot longer than that, but that's the, the, the brief summary of principle three. And principle uh, 31, which was included in like an additional section. Principle 31 is defined as the right to legal protection uh, the legal recognition and the, the, the preamble of it essentially states uh, everyone has the right to legal recognition without reference to or requiring assignment or disclosure of sex, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression or sex characteristics. Everyone has the right to obtain identity documents, including birth certificates, regardless of sexual orientation, gender identity, etc, etc. Everyone has the right to change gendered information in such documents while gendered information is included in them. Um, Wintermute, as a, as a legal scholar, which he is, he works for KCL, I believe, um, essentially laid out... Egg is room. <laughs> essentially, essentially laid out um, uh, a plan and justification for undermining and removing these principles. Um, and this is based both on his interpretation of the, the context in which the Gender Recognition Act exists and on... A mentality that existed throughout this conference which was one of like essential essentially like legalistic prescriptivism where whereby like if something about gender wasn't written into law then it didn't matter and all that mattered is the hard laws any other component of component of like civil society normal behavior in higher institutions like for example like best practice principles was completely irrelevant if they disagreed with it this is <clears throat> kind of one of the more important things for people who want to look ahead um you know there's nothing MRI can do currently but uh 
basically this guy who is you know very well respected and genuinely well respected rather than a lot of the pills people at this conference you know like jane claire jones is not actually respected in the academic community etc etc um he's basically said you know like i'm going to remove legal rights for trans people and here's how i or anyone else could do it here's a blueprint um the quote's very long and as em said it very much refers to specific precedents but it's an argument that to a lay person you can tell enough to know that if things went completely the wrong way this isn't absolutely um out of touch with reality he's, he's very lucid while he talks about this yeah he's a, he was a very clear speaker uh, as you should now discover because i'm going to roll one of the clips i'm now going to roll a couple of clips of wintermute talking at the conference uh, one after the other um the first refers to essentially his the, 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 the first is a clip of him talking about the GRA and the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. Um, the second is him explaining his position with relation to Principle 31 of the Yogyakarta Principles. Um, the context, the, the rhetorical context in which these quotes exist is generally rather transphobic and there's a lot of stuff that essentially um, is quite like kind of legalistic to exterminatory with how it views trans people. He does not use explicit language, rather he dances around concepts in a rather clinical and detached way. This may be upsetting to some listeners, and that would be completely understandable if it was. The first clip plays now. However, in 2002 and today, it was and remains likely that the majority of transgender persons do not wish to have genital surgery. This gave rise to the second transgender demand change of legal sex without surgery or hormones, but with safeguards, a diagnosis, a diagnosis and a waiting period of two years. The UK government agreed to this demand, which was incorporated into the Gender Recognition Act 2004, or GRA, even though it went well beyond what the Strasbourg Court had required and had no precedent at the national level anywhere in the world. Acceptance of the second transgender demand means that today a person born male can obtain a gender recognition certificate and become legally female, even though they have a beard, a deep voice, and male genitals. The law allows them to become legally female, even though almost no one seeing or hearing them would consider them female. So essentially, what what Wintermeet is talking about here is this conception he has of the transgender demand done by the evil transgenders. Um, he, he sees the transgender movement as, as imposing unfair and extreme demands upon, upon um, you know, existing legal frameworks, governments and legislatures and courts. And what he's talking about here is, is the, the, the evil goal of, of, of the trans people for asking that A, something that should, something should happen, and B, the, the childish, naive foolishness of the UK government for doing anything remotely beyond the legal minimum. This is essentially the justification for what he then goes on to explain, um, because what this entire thing is, is essentially him viewing uh, the inclusion of trans rights as one giant act of political revisionism, um, as like a destruction of what is proper in the legal world, a rollback of reality, like a, usurp like a usurpation of proper law. Like he's, he, he was very calm about this, but it was clear that he saw it as being personally offensive, like something something core about his world had been shocked. 
So here we have a very clever zealot who is zealot about wanting trans people to not exist. And um, we'll note this, I, I don't think we have this in the audio quotes that I selected, but not only, not only is this man a zealot, he is actually a convert zealot. He was originally in favour of the entirety of the Jogjakarta principles, but got a round of applause for saying, I changed my mind after listening to women. So he got pilled. He got red pilled. Anyway, we move on. He talks about principle 31 or his interpretation of it. The second winter mute clip begins now. Principle 31 claims that under existing international human rights law, every country in the world has an obligation to end the registration of the sex of the person in identity documents such as birth certificates. Until this is done, the third transgender demand, self-identification, must be adopted. No eligibility criteria, such as a psychomedical diagnosis or minimum age, shall be a prerequisite to change one's legal sex. With regard to change of legal sex, the George Carter principles are not a neutral statement of international human rights law, but rather a radical advocacy document. I would argue that the GRA is very generous and that the UK Parliament should not amend it for England and Wales or the Scottish Parliament for Scotland, especially because the Stratford Court does not require us to amend it. So yeah, there's this interesting bit about them not about it not being a neutral statement, but a radical advocacy document. And like A, why would that be bad? And B, it says a lot about this man that he not only sees that as bad, but also as being like an act of offence upon the state and upon the body politic. This, of course, will be familiar rhetoric to um, people who have followed UK migrant solidarity, because as the UK and the rest of Western Europe uh, starts to become even more evil and deadly when it comes to migrants, um, one of their things that they did a few years ago quite hard and have, have left alone at the moment is decrying um, you know, uh, f firefighters or judges or um, kind of anyone who's supposed to, who's supposed to be just um, as radical activists for taking the side of um, you know the righteous. And um, again, it dovetails in with what the Tories want anyway, but also has more weight coming from you know this legal this legal guy. The other specific thing about this quote is is like here it specifically relates to the GRA, which is like one of the great like evil totems for for the LGB alliance and the the, the gender critical turf transfer movement in general, um, um, which obviously was their first kind of institutional success. Uh, they destroyed the GRA and they destroyed self ID. There's then this amazing piece where Winchamu essentially lays out this this like piece of, of like legal conceptual analysis. And this got a, a, an applause from the audience, people who are notionally meant to be transgressive, progressive people, according to their own internal narratives. And I'll, I'll just play it now so you can get the idea of what I'm talking about, of why it's so interesting in how reactionary it is. I'm now going to play the third clip from Robert Wintermute's talk. Again, the content of this audio contains this kind of like generally uh, cold and dispassionate form of transphobia, which was the hallmark of Wintermute's talk. But we must remember that a transgender person seeking a change of legal sex is asking for an exemption from the general rule that a person's birth sex is their legal sex for life 
because their birth sex never changes. Exemptions have conditions. We can justifiably attach conditions to crossing the legal border from male to female or female to male, just as we attach conditions to crossing an international border, acquiring new citizenship, being granted refugee status, being approved as a lawful parent, obtaining disability benefits, or being granted the status of conscientious objector to military service. In none of these situations is it sufficient to self-identify as a visitor, citizen, refugee, adoptive parent, disabled person, or conscientious objection. I mean, like the takeaway from this is so obvious, like it's it's so obvious that this is like a statist, carceralist, imperialist po politics. Uh, he's just tied it all together for them. And these people were, I mean, they weren't jumping up and down to the rafters. This was a very dry speaker, but nobody was booing this. They were all like politely applauding. They were agreeing with him and nodding along. Um, this like this particular piece of audio is in many ways one of the most like chilling bits of the whole thing because it just means that the they've they've adopted this entirely like reactionary conservative political mindset in terms of how they conceive every aspect of the world. Like they think it's okay to attach conditions upon someone to to grant them refugee status, whereas anyone who considers themselves like remotely like politically radical would would consider that to be like bananas and a, and a UKIP policy. I know it's very popular in the UK. I know why these people support it. They, they are all, essentially all anti-migrant. But it was just interesting that this stuff was said out loud in this explicit way that this man did the work that we normally have to do to, to tie like the struggle for, for, you know, intersectional politics together. Like he's essentially done reverse intersectionality. It's kind of like, it's kind of like when uh, that... It's kind of like how Carl Schmitt is often read by 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 anarchists as well as Nazis because the the Nazis read Schmitt to 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 get like the the, the fascist conception of jurisprudence to see to see what they got all the all the buttons that you have to tick uh, all the buttons that you have to press and then the anarchists read Carl Schmitt to understand like what the what the mentality of the most evil component of the state could possibly be when it comes to when it comes to like legality and the use of state force and all that kind of thing. Yeah, that's what we're doing here. Um, but but he from his side is doing it where he is providing an exact blueprint for this and he's this bit specifically obviously ties it back to the principles as well um, because the principles say that we shouldn't need this uh, and he says that we do etc etc etc. One of the one of the most like disgusting bits to me other than the the bit where he comments on um, refugee status was a bit about disability benefits because like it's disgusting but it fits entirely because every single one of these things is a tory policy push. yeah i mean it's not it's not surprising it's just like he just said this so so like horrendously anyway yeah that was that was fun the other the other bits of the music is the, is the bit about the conscience subject for example because that is like that is such an amazing example of a situation where somebody self-identifying as a conscience subjector in, instantly eradicates legal power if they stick to it like they, they might get put in prison for for dodging the draft or something, or conceivably even shot in some places, but they will remain a conscientious objector. And this guy thinks that they won't be a conscientious conscientious objector just because they aren't legally recognised as one. That, for example, in like some some fascist state, somebody refusing to fight would be legally designated a traitor for doing conscientious objection. Presumably, this man thinks that 
that person would not be a conscientious objector because they didn't have, you know, the the conditions for their exemption granted to them by the state. I, I, that that was just astonishing to me. Well, of course, this movement has tied itself so so securely to state power, both rhetorically and, and literally. They they can't admit they can't admit that they can conceive of that, even yeah. if they could conceive of it. And th- this is notionally for like an intelligent, logical man. Like th- this was one of the most amazing pieces of cognitive dissonance in the entire thing that he literally doesn't understand how. Well, it's it's he he may understand it, but he he can't voice his understanding in this setting. Anyway, one last quote from Wintermute, just to put the the nail in that particular coffin. Uh, This is the fourth and final quote from Wintermute's presentation. Um, It largely refers to self-identification as a legal concept, um, but in general it kind of follows the the themes of the previous ones, and people who might have found the the previous quotes upsetting will, will, will likely feel the same way about this one. Uh, the quote is also just generally rather authoritarian in its in its themes and mindset. So just just be mindful of of that if it is the kind of thing which in this context is particularly upsetting for you. Although self identification has so far been rejected for England and Wales, we must remember that it could become an issue in the Strasbourg Court in a future case that could affect the UK. It will be important for sex is real or gender political groups to make their voices heard in the court, which already has five pending cases on persons born male claiming legal recognition as mothers and persons born female claiming legal recognition as fathers. The four transgender demands I have discussed are not about equal rights. They are about weakening or abolishing altogether a system that has served us well. To protect women, it records birth sex and attaches legal significance to birth sex in certain circumstances. We need only compare the four transgender demands with LGB demands in the past. LGB people did not seek to liberate heterosexual women from marriage by abolishing marriage. We sought and then ended up with the same choices as opposite sex couples marry, form a civil partnership, or live together without registering. The transgender rights movement has gone well beyond seeking legal rights. It seeks to liberate women without their consent from the legal protections associated with birth sex and even from the recording of birth sex. Better protection of the human rights of a very small minority must not come at the expense of the human rights of the majority of women. Here again, he regurgitates a lot of uh, Tory concern trolling, specifically about the Strasbourg court, which links into the fact that since before Brexit, um, the Tories wanted to get rid of the uh, human rights that we have in the UK, which are heavily related to the European human rights. And we have in the recent past, if I remember correctly, M, been uh, outvoted by a supranational national body about our terrible, terrible human rights. And so... Here, he sets it up as sort of like, oh, it's really important that we stay evil locally in the UK because we can't let the, you know, it's classic Brexit stuff regurgitated essentially, but with a trans kind of coating on it. Not only this, but he also advocates for what he calls sex is real or gender critical groups. 
to make their voices heard in the court, as you've just heard. So he he's not just he's not just advocating like subtly advocate essentially subtly advocating for this for this um, like you know little Britain conception of, of matters. He's also at the same time advocating for like an internationalist outlook in terms of the activism they do. Because he is he is saying to these people we should interview we should intervene in upcoming Strasbourg Strasbourg court cases. So it's it, like yes, there's there's elements of little Britainism in that he keeps bringing up. You know the, the 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 Strasbourg court, and in 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 a sense, making it an evil over overarching institution, which fits with other stuff that was in the conference. Like there was a lot of stuff about like importing the ideology from the U.S. by by Joe Bartosz at one point. After having given a blueprint for UK specific meddling, he now adds comments about international activism that listeners can do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's like the, all this other stuff about. Um, like the, the last bit, like saying like transgender rights movement has gone well beyond seeking civil rights, it seeks to liberate women from without their consent from legal protections associated with birth sex. Like this is getting into great replacement stuff. Yeah, like this is getting into like great he replacement. himself. We've got a few quotes which edge towards that territory, but even this guy who is, is pretty lucid still gets this far. Great replacement appeared in various different guises here. Um, we'll get into it in more detail with one of the other quotes, um, either in this episode or the next one. Uh, but it was it was a strong recurrent theme that various iterations of great replacement theory appeared here. But anyway, yeah, he wants to target sections three and thirty one of the Jogjakarta principles specifically, rather than eliminating the entire system. Um, you heard it here first. Yeah, and this like they, it's not like these people were like voting on policies. Like this guy was a panelist, but panelists was all that this com- was all this conference was about. It's not a democratic institution. It's just people hanging out with vibes talking about stuff that they like and then that gets turned into outputs so this man was very coherent he had a very like clear understanding of what he wanted and what he wanted conference to do and he seemed very well respected and i think this the fact that there are people here and that they are engaging in this like very targeted legalistic strategic um or notionally strategic philosophizing should be considered very very worrying which brings us on to like policies like they had a number of essentially like policy intentions and this this is where we get into the the kind of the kind of like institutions that they're targeting lisa masood uh was one of the speakers a family barrister and ex-fbu official who apparently switched careers partially because of having to talk to trans people so in one of the pieces of her speech she uh, she compared the judiciary and the CPS to the FBU, the Fire Brigades Union, um, and then says the the influence upon our judicial structures by trans issues appears to be having direct implications for not only our judges, people's conduct in court, but also even case law. Take, for example, the little known case of Maya Forstarter. Obviously, they all know who Forstarter is. Obviously, she then goes on to reference that heavily. But then that segues into her referencing the use of a document called the Bench Book, which is a best practice guide for judges issued by the Judicial College. Uh, Masood obviously claims that the judge misuses the Bench Book um, and continues more of this radical judge activist shit. The clip of Masood talking starts now. Uh, the clip does contain a couple of instances of, of deliberate and, and politically aggressive misgendering. Um, it largely regards uh, legal frameworks and talks about self-ID. 
However, in Forstatter, when giving judgment, Judge Taylor seemed to use the bench book less as a guide in helping trans people take part in the proceedings, but instead he used it as a guide to what transgenderism meant in general. Of serious concern is that the bench book puts forward a concept of trans identity which is based on self-identification and is different from anything recognised in English law. So what we had was a judge using the bench book as a practitioner's text instead of using it as a simple guidance on how witnesses should be dealt with in court. And reading the bench book, it's easy to see why Judge Taylor was so convinced that Forsatter's belief was incompatible with human dignity. After all, Maya held an opinion about what it meant to be a female that differed totally from what was in the bench book. So what are the dangers that this could lead to? Well, we know that when Maria McLaughlin appeared in court after being assaulted by a trans woman, she was criticised by the judge for refusing to refer to her male attacker as she. We also have examples of female victims of sexual assault having to refer to their male rapist in court as she. Now, you may think that if the judiciary has been captured by trans ideology, then what hope do other organisations have? And it's a fair concern. When our judiciary accepts the notion of self-ID by the back door, then it's easy to see why self-ID has been accepted by so many organisations, despite it not actually being part of our law. After all, if we can't count on a court of law to preserve the legal definitions of what sex is, then it's easy to see how our language and laws can be misused generally, not just for sex-based rights, but also for LGB rights. So in this clip, Masood does not state to the, audience, to the audience, oh, we need to go and attack the judiciary. She doesn't say that. Um, and if I remember the raw audio correctly, I don't think she says that at any point during the entire speech. But given that throughout the conference, these people were thinking about like there being a general attack on institutions that they have to fight back, they have to fight back tooth and nail in every example. I think that this should be seen as a major warning sign that the, the transphobic political movement is gonna start making moves which would be amenable to the conservative government to politicize the, 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 the judiciary in the UK. Um, it's not as if being a judge is, is an apolitical thing. Like it's, a, it, it's, you know, it's not an electoral appointment. It's not, a, it's not a political appointment in the formal sense, but it is, it is something that it is in the political economy. It's important in the political economy. The judiciary is important in the political economy of republics in particular. And in terms of how it functions, the UK is in many ways a de facto republic, even though it's formally speaking as a monarchy. The politicization and the like the, the, the sectarian politicization of, of the judiciary in that kind of context is like such a big alarm bell if you're thinking about fascism that it's very difficult to understate it. Judges and the political nature of judges in the UK, particularly over the last few years, have become increasingly like a bit, a bit canary in the coal mine-ish 
there's been a lot of like very reactionary court judgments, particularly with relation to protesting um, and also with relation to like migration stuff. And that has not yet impacted, been impacted by like culture war stuff, except in the case of, of migration, which is the, you know, the, the big culture war thing in the UK, a battle which the, the left completely lost. And if if they do this, then it means that they get to start changing. If they if they manage to politicize this area of judicial practice, then it would essentially mean the Tory government was beginning to proactively pick and choose areas of entire like judicial and legalistic framework policy to rewrite at will. And I this think is very late in the in the fascism's creep, you know. Yeah, it's still in it's still in creep stage, but the the, the qualitative nature of this kind of maneuver, should it happen, is really like it's it's really momentous. It's it's really concerning, and like it's it, like I said, it's not like these people were voting on policies in the audio that I heard. Like it was all speeches and and like talking shop. The but politicians were guests at these policy, speeches. Policy were makers were guests at the conference. And they were apparently more than one Downing Street advisor attended this and they received a letter from Boris Johnson partway through. The fact that they're talking about this stuff in these terms in that kind of context is important. And this this was actually one of the less extreme versions because she doesn't call for explicit policy maneuvers in relation to the judiciary, but the implication was there. Intentional or otherwise, the implication was there. Okay, let's talk about Lisa Townsend. Lisa Townsend is the Surrey Police and Crime Commissioner, and also, the, as she noted herself, uh, was the reason for Surrey Pride joining Trans Action Block, protesting outside the conference, and, and various other members of the of the like activist brigade. Um, Townsend uh, you know, claims that she was sort of like a closet gender crit until becoming police crime commissioner, at which point she received loads, like just because she was a public elected official, she claims that she received lots and lots of stuff raising concerns in the community about, about you know, gender identity politics. And this, this essentially encouraged her to start posting on Main about it. Um, and like many other speakers at this conference, she says, oh, I was very, very pro Stonewall. And was then contacted by Joe Bartosz. And the way that it, like the audio describes her talking to Joe Bartosz kind of implies to me that this was how she got connected to the proper gender crit cir circles prior to going fully public and, and really kind of like nailing her colors to the mast. Uh, anyway, um, Townsend's presence in the conference was important for one of two things. First of all, she was one of two members of the Conservative Party who held elected positions to be on the panels. And with the explicit implicate, with the explicit like intention on the part of the conference organizers that this would be like a multi-partisan front, because they had representatives from all the political parties, as well as like campaigning groups in all of the major political parties. So that's you know, Lib Dems, Tory, and Labour. Um, and she advances like several kind of like things I think were I think are important for understanding how the institutional capture stuff works for these people. 
like she's a wonderful example of the like of like Tory electoral politi politicians like becoming pilled and the way in which they behave, whereby they like they start pushing the envelope. They deliberately or semi deliberately get into scrapes with like local stone or, lo or local pride groups, and then they use that to push the issue further and further, both within their like local institutional ballpark, in her case, you know, the Surrey Police Service um, or police force, and within like the wider political context as well. Uh, she was also noticeable for like gloating and like making fun of Pride Surrey. Um, there's a little clip of it here. And Private Surrey came into my office a few weeks ago. He said they don't. Although Private Surrey have said that they don't want to come back to my office because they feel physically threatened by me. <laughs> And furthermore, uh, she, amongst various other speakers, advanced this, this uh, rhetorical trope whereby anything that wasn't LGB alliance that was involved in the LGBT community at all was immediately accused of homophobia and um, the erasure of lesbians and homosexuals. In the following clip, Lisa Townsend essentially talks about her opinions of how the police have gone too far in their their great journey to become a progressive institute a progressive institution and how how things have changed so much for women um and 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 in terms of their racial equalities perspectives and all of this kind of thing um i mean th th there's nothing that would really qualify as a, as a trigger warning exactly it's more just that it's an infuriatingly blind piece of speech to make Anyway, the clip begins now. And, and what's happened is policing has changed enormously. I mean, in all kinds of ways it has changed. It's changed for women, it's changed for uh, gay and lesbian people, it's changed, it's, it's just, it's changed um, from a race point of view, and that's all good. But I do think, and Alice has spoken about this as well, this sort of niceness has led to an overcorrection. And the problem is, and it's really, really interesting, I spoke to, to Kate earlier after she now this i think is like quite important because it indicates one of the rhetorical maneuvers that will begin to become used by politicians as opposed to ideological gender activists in the past uh, because if they can talk about this, then it's their their equivalent of being like, oh, what about free speech? What about or like the the antifa are the real fascists? That kind of thing. It's 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 Darvo again, which has cropped up before. If they accuse Stonewall of homophobia, then they delegitimize Stonewall. They confuse the fuck out of the argument. Some people will turn off. The people who are turned on are radicalized voters on one side or another and everybody else just kind of like lets the government do what they want. Um, it also re reveal, like further reveals part of their ideology in general regarding Stonewall, which is that it is an organization to be like insulted, usurped and fought against. Yeah, because it's like, it's interesting who Lisa Townsend is in the sense that like, what's interesting about her is that she, 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 she controls a fuck ton of police and she's a cop and she, has it out for one of her local LGBT groups? Like that's what's interesting, right? Yeah, I, I would agree, and I think I think it is indicative. And she jokes about physically threatening them, and everyone laughs. 
yeah and i think it's indicative of like the mentality and how that mentality gets like intertwined with the policy intentions of these people because like police and crime commissioners are like a much forgotten component of political architecture in the uk yeah no one gives a shit about the police and crime commissioner elections which is why the tories win all of them um and actually they do come with a lot of power over over policy obviously and that means that people like people like townsend are going to start setting the trend there was like a bit where there was a bit in one of the other audio sections of the conference where they talk about um townsend well they sort of imply that that townsend is in contact with a bunch of other police and crime commissioners and that some more of them will come out of the woodwork with this kind of nonsense so it's like it's like networking at multiple different executive levels of state but specifically this is Describing networking of violent armed thugs who we already know are extremely violent towards women and anyone they think they can get away with. Yeah, like the stuff that we've just had about the judiciary, um, it seems to me like they, they, they might be being a, a lot more proactive or they have the capacity to be more proactive about it in the police. Because like a judge probably wouldn't be able to go to the LGB Alliance conference. Like that would probably be a step too far for a judge to engage in explicit political activism. Like it would start to like produce upsets for their cases. But police and crime commissioner, given that they're a political person and not a civil servant, can absolutely turn up to one, which means that the culture of the police can be changed very, very quickly. Considering that it's already an extremely you know, violent, evil culture, etc. The fact that Townsend boasts about having essentially like a, a group chat of um, of transphobic uh, policymakers in 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 the, in the pig ranks is like indicates that there that there's definitely going to be some on the ground uh, policy change levels as well. Um, obviously, cops are bastards. We all know this, duh, and they're already terrible to trans people. But like. I wonder how fast the trend of rainbow-painted cop cars is going to reverse, considering that the UK is also starting to pick up on the US-style um, pushing of cops out of pride and things like that. Oh do... my god, the rainbow-painted cop cars. You will never believe what they mentioned specifically. <laughs> and which I did not include in the transliterated uh, transcriptions, which I put in the, the notes document. Oh yeah? Yeah, it was the rainbow-painted cop cars. I'm so sorry. <laughs> But who mentioned them and in what context? Oh, uh, I think it might have been Townsend herself, actually, or someone just after her. But it was within this 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 section as well. Like it was within the section where they were talking about the police. Well, given also that the from what I could tell of the coverage, the police were very closely involved with the conference itself. You know, as cops, you know, Townsend was there not as an on duty cop. It definitely seems that you know if the thin blue line reactionaries. Um, take after the US in any way whatsoever, which they do because they love copying them. I would not be surprised if there was a convergence between uh, violent uh, uh, pig gang crime and 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 I have to wonder the, the street violence convergence as well. Yeah, I think, it, I think it would be highly plausible for the street violence convergence to essentially come via the police anyway, because like right-wing street violence in the UK is not very coherent, it's all very stochastic. Whereas if you wanted to engage in like a policy change and you can do it via the cops, then that's a massive way to shift the manner of, of police violence. And also the, all these bloody trans people are political, so the cops and they hate keep them anyway. And protesting and we're yeah. allowed to run over protesters now, so. Cool stuff. Um, obviously, like you've just mentioned, like the, 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 like the kind of like the street side of the cops, and I, I, I hasten to remind you of cop Twitter. 
Um, <laughs> Don't now, worry, Cop Twitter lives rent free in my head. So, Cop, Cop Twitter, if you've ever like taken a deep dive into it, which I have in the past, is that these guys are all very concerned with common sense. And obviously that means that anything to do with like modern gender politics is right out there. There's a lot of transphobes. But, on- yeah, the cop Twitter and trans and transphobe Twitter is already pretty interlinked. Um, but obviously a lot of cop Twitter just want to be cops. They're not actually cops. Yeah, but there are a lot of cops on Twitter that have like ridiculous, ridiculous usernames and, and like pictures of, of, of truncheons yeah. as, their, as their profile pics and all that kind of thing. They've just got this general be in their bonnet about specific institutions, which, which we've you know, given you some chilling examples of, and about Stonewall. Um, which brings me on to like one of the questions at the end of this panel, which Jane Claire Jones answered. Hi, a question to everyone. Why do you think Stonewall was so easily captured? <laughs> because they've done their job. And they needed something else to do. This is the thing institutions have their own survival instincts, right? Once they once they got to equal marriage, their slate was clean, they should have wrapped they should have wrapped themselves up. And or they should have uh, done the other thing that still needs to be done, which is campaign for LGB rights globally. Which just like lays out the the general idea ideal that these people hold to which is that like marriage equality ended it for a lot of these people after that they stopped caring about the movement and about and about the notion of equal rights because they had got their they got their like their middle class privilege all sorted and at this point they were all like 50 years old so it was like great time to buy our house time to stop paying off our mortgages and settle down we've we've done it we've become full members of the citizenry and fuck everyone else let's yank up the ladder and also it indicates that they think that like stonewall is past it and that now it's their turn to replace stonewall which is fully their intention and then i got to the bit in the audio file where we get to the Alison bailey keynote address and this is like this was like a massive like tempo change essentially because the, the panels were essentially like intellectual affairs, so to speak. Like they were, they were, they were like, you know, having nice little discussions and, and you know, doing, doing lots of like really loud applause and all this stuff. But like Alison Bailey essentially like came out as like their fucking Nigel Farage movement leader. And when I was listening to the audio of this, it was just bananas because she was like, creating like a narrative and a mythos about the LGB alliance as an organization and a creed which people belong to indelibly tied up with their identities as lesbians gays and bisexual people and that's fucking worrying um so yes because nothing else at this conference is worrying in the slightest (laughs) so she she there's been a whole bunch of discourse online about like oh why don't the LGB alliance people essentially try to gotcha the LGB alliance by saying like why don't the LGB alliance do stuff for lesbians, gays and bisexual people which is a fairly good gotcha because they're not going to do a fucking thing for them except ruin their lives by proxy or directly Um, except the LGB alliance was not destroyed by facts and logic so yeah except well the the reason why they weren't destroyed by facts and logic is explained in this clip from the Alison Bailey speech where she describes the concept of gender identity and of trans people as an existential threat to them. 
position that Stonewall took was that it was going to lobby on behalf of two distinct characteristics, sexual orientation and gender identity. There was no conflict because Stonewall couldn't afford for there to be a conflict. And so someone, one of those two, had to be sacrificed. And we all know which one it was. We became not same-sex attractive people, but same-gender attractive people. <laughs> and that is why when people ask online, if you're LGBT alliance, why are you focusing so much on gender identity? Well, And she just fucking lays it out like they like they they're not going to do fucking anything about um actual lgb stuff at all because they consider it to be one and the same as destroying trans people as a political entity and a social category of human being that are allowed to live and they link that up with usurping stonewall and they consider that to be their 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 party platform so i think we should probably talk about that <laughs> Yeah. Um, so basically, we've we've gone through some of the kind of um, points and plans that they've made more generally. But Bailey's speech specifically was, you know, very much the uh, Ian McKellen, Richard the Third. Except that's God, that's such an insult to Ian McKellen. I just mean the fascist styling of the 1995 film. Um, you know, she's got everything. She's got the relatively slick, considering that people on Twitter would have you think that LGBA Alliance is just a clown car show. Like compared to that actually quite slick um, presentation with a pretty coherent plan. There will be a PL firm doing business with LGB Alliance and it, and it shows in this speech specifically. Mm. Like, you know, like the, the, the audio and video clips that, that, that Charlie sent me, like I, I thought they were a clown car show kind of until I saw a lot of this stuff. Like, I, you know, I knew they were influential and they were bad and they were powerful and they were doing bad things. But I, didn't, I didn't expect them to be like on this level of capacity. They, they specifically talk at one point um, about needing to gain power. That's, uh, I think it might have been Kathleen Stock. Basically oh, it was says, Helen Joyce. Oh, sorry, Helen Joyce. Oh, sorry, I mixed them up. Hel yeah, Helen Joyce at one point basically does the whole fascist whiny thing like, oh, we're the real victims. And then goes on to be like, oh, and I had this idea about how we'd fix things. We'd just get into power. Yeah, so in fact, before we get into the rest of the, 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 the Bailey speech, we should actually loop back to this bit about Helen Joyce at the very, very beginning of the audio, because it, it also explains this. Anyway, the clip begins now. What's needed is to stop the pillory. And that didn't stop because people rose up en masse. It stopped because people in power wanted to stop it. And nobody ended up in the pillory who had someone powerful on their side. So if you had somebody who had status and social cachet, this sort of punishment did not happen to you. And that was when it tweaked for me that this is about institutions and employers, most importantly employers. So yeah, it's like all, all this stuff was just setting the tone of these people's mentality. And it, they're, they're, like Bailey is directing this stuff like a prism focusing beam, like a, like a, like a lens focusing beams of light into a very coherent set of targets in this speech 
and the main one is Stonewall. Like the main the main theme of this of this audience of this of this conference, as far as I can tell, seems to have been that they want to attack Stonewall first because they smell blood in the water, and have that be part of this multi front campaign, which we've mentioned. And they're essentially doing it by psyoping the Conservative Party, which is easy because they want to be because they already believe most of this stuff anyway. And of course, uh, as as we've said earlier, the Conservatives will have their own motives for this collaboration, uh, which at present the LGB Alliance either does not know or does not care about the, f- the the bargain that they're striking with the Tories. I would say they don't give a shit. Like, um, you know, they don't care or they either know, don't know or don't care, but they, they, they just don't care. You know, there may be some uh, who, despite having embraced very fascistic reactionary beliefs, get cold feet about this kind of thing. And we suspect that that is where Bindle, that's why Bindle didn't turn up um, because their keynote speaker was some weird washed up celebrity. And we smelled something weird. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, it's interesting to watch this really coalesce into a very specific, explicitly political, not party, but um, platform. Uh, yeah, like uh, I think platform is the right word because it's like ba- Bailey throughout the audio of this speech is, is like she's forming a band, essentially, like like she's 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 doing this kind of like shitty turf agincourt speech to 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 bring everybody together to, to like have this umbrella organization of transphobes. Yeah, and as 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 I said to Emma when we were listening to a lot of this audio, um, you know, a lot of it also relates to more more culty than necessarily political, although obviously they can be both kinds of social cohesion. A lot of the audience participation, a lot of the way the panel speeches were structured, did come to mind. Um, you know, a fundamentalist religious sermon uh, or other sort of high high energy, high control groups. Yeah, um, I think yeah. Uh, high high energy would definitely be a, a good way of, of 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 you know describing the Bailey the Bailey thing. The other thing about their relationship with the Conservative Party is that they they might not quite have a conception of which aspects of the Conservative Party mentality they are appealing to. One could debate that back and forth as as far as like individual members of the LGBA are concerned, but they do know that they are pressing Conservative Party buttons and they are doing it deliberately. Um, as the following Bailey clip will demonstrate one iteration of this. They allowed Stonewall and the other LGBT organisations, there may be many of them, but they all have the same ideological perspective to say, right, we are going to lobby exclusively for sexual orientation and gender reassignment. We're going to call it some gender identity, which we're going to play around with and expand and build on, but that's what we're going to do. And no one said to them, we can't do that. There's an obvious conflict. No, they did the exact opposite. They allowed Stonewall, who had become embedded in government departments, in, 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 in employment workspaces, because of its work on lesbian and gay rights, to just turn that and suddenly, in adding gender reassignment, they were embedded and free to lobby at will. To policymakers and parliamentarians, if you're listening, the message I want you to hear is that LGB Alliance are being unlawfully discriminated against. 
want to say, this is your Section 28 reading. So what they're doing there is they are essentially appealing to the, the vestiges of like the David Cameron era of conservatism where, where the Conservative Party wanted to have some semblance of progressiveness so that they can use that as a back channel, as, as, as they can use that as cover for doing wildly reactionary stif- stuff elsewhere. You know, like the, conser- like the Conservative Party under Cameron had this like progressive veneer whilst destroying social services. And exactly. this con- in this context, they want the Conservative Party to suck up to the middle class sections of the LGB portions of the population by saying like, oh, we're going to repudiate our Section 28 history. And they're going to do that by reiterating Section 28 for trans people. I think it's worth noting that, I, you know, I think there is going to be um, a night of the long knives and that the LGB alliance are not prepared for this um, but that's different I think from I've noticed a lot of people giving these people far too much good faith when it comes to do they know what they're doing in terms of trans exterminatory rhetoric they absolutely do are they aware that by going after further education health law you know kind of everything that they will be fucking themselves over because they're not all rich, white, aristocratic men, i.e. Boris Johnson. Probably not. But that's kind of long-term thinking rather than total unawareness. Right. So in our in our most recent episode, when we talk about the Judith Butler article, we criticised Butler for not taking into account the fact that historical fascist movements have often included within them members of the minorities which they discriminated against, notably... Uh, <laughs> lesbian and gay members of the of the Nazi party were, were in frequently in prominent positions um, and the same with British fascists as well um, and like I think these people could stick around in some capacity within within like a, a crypto fascist conservative party run British state for quite some time but certain portions of the LGB alliance would essentially just get like washed away like the Julie Bindles and and, and, and Julia Long's of the LGB alliance are simply just going to get railroaded because they're too rad fair. Yeah, and I, we think that Bindle has probably sensed this. Maybe. It's difficult to tell, but it's, it's plausible, isn't it? Yeah. Which has nothing to do, and this is why I make this point, this has nothing to do with these people's capacity for empathy towards trans people. Even if they realise that, that their goose might be cooked, that does, that does not absolve them of any of this. And it's not a us versus them. Uh, it's, it's, this specifically is about TERFs colluding with the Tories specifically, not about whether they are TERFs or not, or whatever you want to call them. Yeah, what you've got to remember about strike breakers is that the strike breaker eventually loses out as well, essentially. Anyway, um, there were other ways in which they attempted to psyop the Conservatives, and the other one was essentially kind of like doing... Um, the tactics that Rosie Duffield uses on Keir Starmer, they essentially tried to like embarrass certain conservative politicians, including um, the new, like the incoming new equalities minister, Mike Freer, and also a guy called Lord Herbert. And would you explain who Lord Herbert is for the listeners, please? 
Yeah, so this was another thing where I had never heard of this personal concept before. Lord Herbert is the UK special envoy on LGBT rights and the chair of the College of Policing. And a couple of times during the conference, um, Herbert was brought up. They wanted to push for access to the 2022 Global LGBTQ Summit. Um, which is a, a thing that's being held by the, by the UK government. We mentioned this at the beginning of the episode. They're tr- the way in which they're trying to get access to this summit to get essentially government sanction to represent the UK on the world stage, to represent the UK's LGBT policy on the world stage and thus gain more international clout, was essentially by, you know, in a context where they're next to other conservative politicians, putting pressure on a conservative politician who might arguably be in a vulnerable position within the, the context of internal conservative party politics. So it's, it's clever. Yeah, and this is, this is what I find interesting about LGB Alliance as an organization rather than as a banner for this, um, you know, this broad tent, specifically as an organization, it seems exactly like this is what the actual movers and shakers behind LGBA want. Like they don't just want the Tories to listen to their concerns as pilled mums. They specifically want power and influence over the Tories so that they can get some nice cushy jobs. They they, they want to get rid of Stonewall and then they want to have, you know, a Stonewall, a Stonewall CEO salary for themselves. Yeah, I mean, to, to give you an idea of the mentality of the people running the show, one of the people who was like, who is like a key founder of the LGB Alliance used to be a fucking prison governor, you know? But yeah, they do actually have really good understanding of these institutions. And I think this stuff actually really explains why this odd letter writing campaign um, that they seem to take, all of their actions seems to take the form of, it's paying huge fucking dividends now. And it kind of explains, I think, why we've all been sort of left behind. Like Em and I are, you know, black-pilled hogs, so we can just decry literally any institution and, and say they're bad, which we do often. But I think not understanding how how well they've been able to maneuver behind closed doors explains a lot of why people, especially trans people who aren't necessarily too political, keep just getting absolutely hit in the face and surprised by each fresh iteration of institutional capture. Yeah. Uh, and the, the other politician which they are essentially trying to put pressure on, as I mentioned, is, is the Equalities Minister, which is another brilliant example of this. Not Liz Truss. Uh, we got a bit confused by this, actually. There are currently, it seems, three Equalities Ministers. So we've got Truss, who is very pally with the turfs. And is, the, is like the official one, like she's the one listed on Wikipedia. Yeah, she's the main one. So there's currently Liz Truss, who is the main one, uh, who is very pally with the turfs, although is not herself a poster. Badenoch, who is a poster, who was filmed um, just saying a bunch of bigoted shit uh, about LGBT people and specifically misgendering um, trans people and has very specific links with LGB Alliance, uh, you know, not kind of JK Rowling level rather than um, normal Tory level. So just for clarity, um, to explain to you guys what we're, why we're talking about this guy, basically, uh, there's a very short clip of Bailey again putting pressure specifically on him towards the end of her speech and it's 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 an, it's one of these it's one of these sort of like negative examples of pressure applied by the LGB alliance like they they apply positive pressure quite a lot by sucking up to people or or, or like having little kind of like closeted conversations with them 
Um, but this was essentially an example of them using their platform to place pressure on an arguably slightly more socially progressive Tory uh, by the standards of the Tory party. It was a source of regret that the recently appointed Equalities Minister, Mike Freer, refused to meet the LGBT Alliance at the recent Conservative Party conference. And all I can say to him is, you pay your wages. <laughs> So yeah, it's that it's basically that specific equalities minister that we're talking about. It's not it's not Truss and it's not Badenoch. It is it is actually this this other guy. Mike Freer is that one gay MP who cares about gay stuff legitly, uh, and he has not particularly been anti-trans. And he was also appointed very shortly after Badenoch jumped the shark uh, in 4K. Now. I highly doubt that he's been, M's first idea was that he'd been got on as a minder. And that would make sense if not for the fact that Johnson had provided a specific personal seal of approval to the conference that they unveiled, you know, with great pomp and circumstance. I do wonder if Mike Frey has decided to get a little bit of a conscience about the LGP community and has sort of muscled his way in. He's quite a senior Tory MP and probably the only gay that a lot of old Tories know and think of a human being like he's probably their one good gay so he might have used his status as the one good gay to try and get in there and I don't know yeah the, the internal them being more evil yeah the internal machinations of the Tory party are not transparent to us so at this point we are speculating can I just check is Freer the poppers guy um you know, the one who fought for... Poppers yeah, yeah, I, I know, I know, I know. I don't think so. I think that's, there's there's like two, there's like two Tory gays and they both have really short generic names. Mm. He, he spoke against the ban on it, but I don't think he was the one that admitted to having used them. Mm. So yeah, they, they, want, they want to be Stonewall. They want to replace them. Um, and the way I have come to think about this is that like I think we mentioned it at the beginning, I, I kind of think of the LGBA as being somewhat similar in some ways to UKIP in that they exist to put pressure in a populist and sectarian manner upon specifically selected bits of the Tory party in order to change government policy. But as with UKIP, the UKIP plot was essentially to, to like ditch the EU and everything involving Europe, they didn't actually have a plan for replacing it, as we discovered with, you know, how, how Brexit went, which was not surprising to anyone who paid attention. It's, but similarly it's, to UKIP, you know, the, the, these people are being given political energy and air and time because their, their culture war shit benefits the Tories. Yeah. Um, and I think I think it, it, it's it's also worth noting that because they have no no plan for replacement, what we're looking at is is like the potential for a series of events that are very much in keeping with the standard practice of, of government over the last 10, 15 years, which is to 
chop out some vast section of, of previously normal government business or policy, completely gut it in whatever way and replace it with something wholly inadequate. Um, because if they do do all of this stuff like, you know, inflicting structural damage upon stuff like the, 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 um, the Athena program or whatever the hell it was called, or like massively altering NHS policy so that they go back to only recording sex and not, rec not recording gender, or, or altering the content of, of like personal, social and, and health education in schools, which was, which was a big thing that was, we'll, we'll talk about more in episode two. Um, then like all of that stuff will shift. It will shift in a manner which is like unfamiliar to a lot of the like the rank and file workers in those sectors, like help, like rank and file health sector workers or rank and file education workers will be like, what the fuck is this policy shift? Now we have to reverse everything we've been doing for the last 10 years. We might've been doing it shittily in an also oppressive way, but it's suddenly gonna become a lot worse and we're also not gonna know about how to do things. So it'll, it'll be massively disruptive to the, like, the, the physical behavior of the state in a way that just like kills trans people by percentages. And it seems to be just kind of like, this it, it reminds me of the destructive psychology of the of the austerity period under under george osborne not that we're oh, absolutely out, not that we're out of austerity because like it's 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 slash and burn statecraft backed up by like the psychosexual urges of this reactionary mindset let's not forget the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people murdered by this government as you say, related to austerity, the DWP, disability, all, in fact, things they've referenced in this conference. Um, they did kill hundreds of thousands of people. That was before COVID. They killed a few more hundred thousand then. The death toll is, I think, in the millions at this point, if you include the last 10 years of Tory rule. The point I'm making is, like, they can very quickly and easily do this with trans people because there isn't a social net specifically for trans people in the way that there is for someone who is unemployed or disabled. You can't compare the two at all generally, but if they wanted to do a sort of DWP shakeup of things, they wouldn't have to actually do much to create a great amount of harm. There's no food banks for testosterone. So like, ultimately I see Bailey's speech as being about like, combining a sense of momentum with a sense of urgency to gin up the troops um like doing popular stuff like shout outs to to, to big names like forstatter or 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 kira bell or whoever and then on on the more sharp end of it about like applying pressure to people like like nick herbert like this tory peer um or um and and also like knitting together this coalition of activists now, in like in the next episode, we're going to be going into like the more like the themes and psychology of the conference rather than the big kind of like policy hits or potential policy hits or like this this, this episode has been like the manner in which the organization was behaving. But like I think the implication of the keynote address is is very profound upon the psychology of the attendees because part of this podcast is about cults and these people haven't formed a cult yet. You don't but, think? Well, it doesn't seem to be high demand yet. Like the, the ideology is very enthralling. Um, People there, it, there on is, Mumsnet is, have been posting about losing family and friends for years. Gender, the, the gender critical interrupt movement is a cult in, in like the stochastic QAnon sense. 
Mm. LGB Alliance has not yet got the loyalty of membership to be a coherent high demand group. It is engaging in things like uh, like informational control. We so, don't know that though. Is the thing we don't actually know that. Well, I, I think that what I'm getting at is I think this is this is part of the building blocks of of, of an incoming cult. Yeah, I'm just saying we don't actually know that they don't already have that loyalty and ability to make demands because we didn't see every member. We saw the attendees of the conference. Right, we're not on their forum. Yeah. So this is this is I, I admit this is me reading the tea leaves from the outside. But yeah. if you can see this stuff on the outside at this stage when they've only existed for a year, it means that the people going in are very loyal, that they absorb the message very readily, and they're very zealous. And that's a really bad place to be in. Yeah, my, my quibble is, is not about whether they will form a cult, it's about whether they've already formed one. And I think that's something that M and I cannot answer uh, right now, but we will no. find out. No, um, my, my speculative position is that this is a this is an instance of crystallizing organizational cult formation within a wider stochastic cult that's QAnon style across the movement. Yeah, and I think I think in terms of making the conference flashy and pulling all the stops out, I think you're right because if you were the kind of person who who put this on, you would want all that free floating political energy, especially because you've seen that it's already basically a ready formed cult. Yeah, I would say that what is much more clear is is the explicitly fascistic element. That, oh yeah, these, pe- that these is people completely are completely on the table. These people are already identifying themselves as kind of like gender stormtroopers. The question is who's going to lead them and what what they're going to lead them to do. Yeah, an LGB alliance wants to be the people who lead them. And you know, many of the people we've covered in this episode have already kind of said what they want them to do. Also, yeah, and they were so. There's been all there was, there was this a lot of stuff in here where people were repeatedly asking like how do I peak trans my friends like that was that was happening both as questions from the the panel moderators and and multiple times in various different ways as questions from the audience so uh, the other big political takeaway in terms of the organizational behavior of the LGBA is that not only like the the elite technocrats in LGBA like um you know creating at least vague plans for certain sections of civil society and the british state if not explicit ones that we can actively tell or already know about but also the rank and file if you can call them that are want to know what their bit is as 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 the blades of grass that make up the meadow they want to know what they 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 need to do Hence why there was a lot of talk about, you know, essentially red pilling people and, and teaching them how to how to bake breadcrumbs, to, to borrow a phrase from from the QAnon movement. I think um, that's why this episode and kind of um, paying attention to this sort of stuff is is really important. I mean, we kind of wanted to get it out first, because if nothing else, uh, you know, even if we're not providing... <laughs> the most crystal clear analysis it's really worth driving home that those memes you saw about uh you know turfs getting into fights and how shit their disco looks and glinna whining uh, doesn't distract from the fact that these people are very fucking dangerous right now and you know we're not just a cult podcast we're also an, an anti-fascist podcast so anyone who has any interest in anti-fascist organizing or, or anything like that I think should be taking a specific look about the conference and think about the aims that they've stated and how they could be frustrated from achieving those aims. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like the, the cult thing is kind of my hobby. 
and that's why it's in here although you know there, there is technical relevance but ultimately the big takeaway here is that these people have formed a coherent technocratic fascistic lobbying group that is advancing an ideology that is going to destroy equalities law tell your friends tell your enemies you know do whatever like i, I if i have to see because this is the things like we've reached the fucking event horizon if i have to see next time there's the bbc sharing just absolute hate incitement or any kind of awful thing which causes all the trans people you know to have a quiet panic attack every time they see it if i have to see a timeline full of stupid fucks making jokes about it instead of people you know talking about how they can resist gender characteristic fascism i'm going to lose my nut like come on we're at the point chop chop we could we could have gone on for like a nine hour long episode just on the policy alone um we're trying to keep this in manageable chunks for you uh this is the end of episode one because there's too much to cover in one episode episode two um which we'll you know record as soon as possible uh is going to be about the themes, the tendencies, the, the psychology, the narrative that Bailey built up and the other speakers built up. Essentially, the, 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 and like the, 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 the role that the tropes that they all rolled out plays in, in how all these people were thinking. What was the vibe going on here? Like, We love to at psychoanalyze uh, the gender fash, and this conference was a, a great um, way to make sure that, you know, we're on target, essentially. Yeah, so it'll be it'll be a bit more kind of it, like it will be worth listening to because some of the stuff that these people said was like they might as well have been on the moon. But this is the urgent stuff. The next stuff is like the terrifying stuff. Although the, you know this is also terrifying. <laughs> you know you know what I mean. This is the urgent stuff. The next bit is the unnerving stuff. That's a good way of putting it. I think. Anyway, uh, I think unless there's anything else you wanted to cover, e that's probably it for this episode because there's, there's there's too fucking much yeah i mean all i all i really can say is is that like if if at this point you know if people refuse to call out fascism for what it is and and refuse to kind of take this conference with the seriousness it deserves take a i, I think if you organize in any political spaces or even just trans spaces really pay attention to how people respond to this and if they try and hand wave this away, like they're, they're wrong, they're wrong. And they're either saying so because they're liberals or because they just don't know or something worse. Uh, this is already serious stuff. Anyway, yeah, turns out we've accidentally broken news on one of the most unintentional, or for their point of view, intentionally important political events this year. Um, so uh, see you next time, everybody. Oh, relatedly, um, we don't want to be the we don't want to have information control unlike our friends at the lgba so if any of this could be useful to researchers or journalists please reach out and let us know yeah i can't say that the the raw audio recording is particularly nice because you know charlie was recording it kind of in an ad hoc way but like if you're a journalist and you check out we'll we'll give you what we can and if you're particularly if you're if you're like a researcher on on you know turf wank so you know drop us a line dm us email us whatever dming us on twitter is way better we check the email once per month we're trying to check it more we'll see you next time bye <laughs>